Welcome to another Say No KNOW.org podcast. We discuss all things drug related, including policy, crime, and research. We talk to professionals, researchers, and people with lived experience and discuss ideas on how we can make things just a little bit better. The Canadian Research Initiative of Substance Misuse has supplied funding to allow this podcast to take place. Our Say No initiative is part of the Chrism Prairies Network. Please check out all the incredible work they are doing in the field of addiction and research at chrismprairies.ca. Again, that's chrismprairies.ca. Please note that the views and opinions expressed within our podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Chrism or any of their members. The views in this podcast also do not necessarily represent the views of my employer or any organization I am associated with. And the same goes for all of our guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and head over to our Facebook page under Facebook backslash say no org or tweet us at say no org. Okay, well, thanks for everybody tuning in to another episode of the say no.org podcast. As you know, this is our drug education project. We're trying to sway some public opinion so we can have research based drug policy. And today, my guest is Dr. Daryl Gebian. Now, his name has kind of become synonymous with uh, the fentanyl crisis that our country is dealing with. So thanks a lot for coming on our show, Dr. Gibbion. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So, I mean, anybody Googles your name, what, what you became infamous for is obviously the doctor that went to jail. Could you kind of just give us a brief synopsis of, of what happened there before we get into uh, kind of some solutions that we can, we can use to mold our sure. country back together? No, it sounds good. Um, so, suffered from back pain back in 2008. Um, it was uh, prescribed, I was prescribed some Percocet by my family doctor, and uh, I liked it immediately. I, it was not only helping my back pain, but took a lot of the anxiety away. It was kind of, to me, it was kind of like a happy pill. And uh, within about a year, I started using it for more for the psychological benefits of it and uh, started abusing it. That grew uh, slowly as the spiral of addiction took place and dependency. Uh, it came to a point where I, I was addicted and dependent and didn't realize it until I had gone through withdrawal, so it was too late. I found out I was addicted after the point. This progressed uh, not in a vacuum. There was other things going on in my life that I wasn't really uh, discussing. I was kind of closed off, isolated from my family and friends internalizing, so I wasn't talking about my problems, I was having issues at work, issues at home, and I, I took it out on myself and self-medicated, used it as a crutch. Then came a day in November, sorry, May of 2014, and uh, I, was, I had run out of uh, Percocet, and I had access to a fentanyl patch. It was a pretty significant withdrawal, and stupidly decided to abuse it instead of using it properly. Um, instead of wearing it on my skin, I, I I abused it, and by smoking a small piece of it was just opening this door to a worsening addiction. Right. It spiraled out of control six months later, and uh, I completely fell apart at the seams. I became to- hopelessly addicted to it, um, more and more dependent, and just making bad decisions. And to continue feeding my habit, I took advantage of my ability to prescribe narcotic pain medications. So that led me into the legal troubles later on, once it was open to um, the police. Uh, it wasn't difficult because there's a narcotics monitoring system here in Ontario. Right. And so I'd, I'd give myself up uh, in a pharmacy, basically. The police found out 
and I was charged with trafficking. So not in the sense of selling it, but trafficking in the sense of writing prescriptions and compelling a pharmacist to give the medication, which is to another yourself. meaning of the word trafficking. Yeah, so exactly. You, so your trafficking charge is basically convincing a pharmacist to traffic to yourself. Right, exactly. So it was never for financial gain or, or personal gain. It was to feed my out-of-control habit. Right. And so that's what, that's what uh, you know, November of 2014 is when it all came to a head. And um, uh, it was clear to my employers uh, in the hospital that I was struggling and the police were involved. And it, went to, uh, it led from there to um, being arrested. And I went to, in total, three rehabs. So I started getting better and healthier back in that, the same time. I, being arrested saved my life. And I know it seems crazy, but that's <laughs> the story in a nutshell. There's lots of good stuff since then, but uh, that's what led me into trouble in the first place. Wow. So when you, uh, so you started with Percocets. Now, from, from my research and, uh, and from the individuals that I talked to, one of the narratives that we put out there is that the vast majority, and I know that there's, uh, it's not the case 100% of the time, but the vast majority of addiction seems to spear from something that happened in the form of childhood abuse, trauma, neglect, no matter what walk of life or socioeconomic status you're in. Was there anything like that? And I don't know how personal you want to get, but I don't know. Was there anything, you know, I, you said in the moment you were, you were dealing with some, some family struggles and you started isolating yourself. Was there anything that happened earlier in your life that you think may have contributed to, I don't know, the love of the Percocets that you, you ended up forming? Yeah, I know that like Dr. Gabor Mate has uh, ascribes to that theory, and the answer is yes. There was stuff in my history, and I'll get to that in a second. It's okay to talk about it, but my personal belief is it's not childhood trauma; it's it's current trauma, uh, stress. Not even trauma, but stress. Being peppered daily by stress. That uh, to me, that makes a lot more sense as to why I was taking it as opposed to previous childhood trauma, whether it's significant trauma or. In my case, it was micro trauma on a daily basis. So I, 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 so I don't really subscribe to this theory, but yes, there was stuff in my past uh, with an older sibling, and um, it would definitely fall into the category of, of verbal abuse uh, throughout my, my entire childhood. So my, an older sibling, he's six years older than I am, um, was always bigger than me. I never really uh, stood up to him. And uh, pretty horrendous um, verbal abuse that took place over my formative years. It, I think if any way that contributed, it kind of, I took, it took away my ability to, for assertiveness. I didn't really develop that skill. And that kind of played in later on, I think maybe in my marriage that I didn't assert myself and speak up when I should have to, to resolve issues. Lacking confidence, I think was a big thing for me growing up. You know, you think being a physician and being educated and all that, that I'd be full of confidence, but it's not the case. And it's not the case for a lot of people. Uh, that's something that's been my own struggle forever, but I, perhaps it does have its bearing from childhood. So yeah, a few things there. So yeah, I mean, there are there, but I would, my own personal opinion is that those things didn't really contribute to the addiction, uh, but maybe, maybe did facilitate poor communication during the development of my addiction. There was something more in the moment that you were going through. Yeah, that, that was the main thing. It was, it was an escape and it was major stress and it just allowed me to cope. And that, that to me, makes a lot more sense. So, so how do you go, like, have you been, do you smoke cigarettes? Yeah. 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 How did you, so, I mean, obviously smoking something is, is not out of the norm, but when you first, when you first decided to switch from the Percocet package over to the fentanyl, I mean, Percocet, you're popping pills, obviously. 
mm-hmm. to okay, you're going to abuse the fentanyl patch and your decision to smoke it. Where, where did that come from? Yeah, kind of out of left field, but I guess in the frame of mind at that point, I was desperate going through withdrawal, like dope sick. And um, I had heard about it through work at the emergency department that, that people were smoking a patch. And my first reaction was, that's crazy. Like, right. <laughs> that's the normal reaction. But yeah. while I was going through withdrawal, um, I don't know, there's some, you know, sense of recklessness in me that's part of my, I think it's probably part of the addiction too. You know, they, they do go hand in hand, the science as well. Uh, when I look back at it now, it's, just, it's absolutely crazy, absurd. But at the time, it didn't seem so crazy to me. But I'd heard about it, and I Googled it and learned how, learned how to do it. Right. And that was a big mistake, huge, huge mistake. That, that led to major problems within six months, completely falling apart, losing weight. So I don't want any viewers or listeners to think that, you know, oh, well, check it out. It is playing with fire. If I didn't have the tolerance that I had developed with the Percocet, I probably would have overdosed and died from smoking the patch because it was so strong and very dangerous. So oh, there's yeah. a lot of dangers associated with that. Well, you're the first guy outside of a jail cell that I've heard of smoking fentanyl. <laughs> <laughs> like, really? That's, I, I remember, funny, uh, yeah, I remember back in the day, um, I used to have an informant that made a lot of money while he was in jail because he was, you know, he was part of smuggling these fentanyl patches in. And that was before, that was the first I'd ever heard of fentanyl. And this was probably back in like 2000 maybe seven or something, 2008. And then, mm-hmm. and then obviously um, there was the rise of the car fentanyl coming in with the knockoff oxy pills, which is kind of what we're dealing with today. Mm-hmm. Medically speaking now, so speaking of Dr. Darrell, any drug is, is more highly successful when it's rapid acting and potent. So fentanyl is both. So it's very potent, and this explains why it's getting into the drug supplies and into tainting uh, cocaine, heroin, and even pot. Uh, because from a dealer's perspective, they get a lot of bang for their buck because people get high quicker. Physiologically speaking, the ra- more rapid onset, the more enjoyable it is. It's a rush. That's why a lot of people inject heroin uh, and you know the end stage of, of opiate addiction. Like the, the most aggressive way to take it is by injecting it. It's because of the rapid onset. Right. That's what people crave. And, and so many prone to addiction, you know, snorting it is another way to do it quickly. And so that's where it's super dangerous. So I remember thinking at the time, like I had worn a fentanyl patch, but I was craving something more. I wanted to, I wanted to feel better. Like, so I was, I was dope, dope sick. And there's that recklessness and I, I didn't realize what I was doing, but by smoking it, it just introduces a massive amount of fentanyl compared to Percocet, right. massive amount of op- opioid. And that rapid onset is soon followed. This is the double-edged sword now. So that rapid onset, it might sound enjoyable to some people, but not the down part, not the crashing off of it. And within 15 minutes, I was craving it again. And that completely sp- uh, d- accelerated this death spiral. Um, it only took six months after that to completely fall apart of the scenes and lose all the weight and make terrible decisions. And, and I was, I was, I was circling the drain. I mean, I, I don't think overdose is, is very likely in that situation. I'm extremely lucky I didn't. So just want to explain why that is and why people jump and why I jumped to um, a very aggressive way sh- short of injecting. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. We've kind of delved into a bit about, uh, kind of methods of absorption in some other episodes. But uh, I mean, that's, that's definitely one of, one of the reasons. I mean, uh, I've got an informant that I've handled for about 10 or 15 years now. Well, not 15, about 10 years. And, uh, and this guy is just a 
crack is his thing and he just loves it. And but but one of the reasons is he can get so high, but it's pretty hard to overdose when you're inhaling something. Like you can't quite inhale as much. At least that's that's his perspective. And from my experience as well, it's there's gonna be some serious damage, but you're gonna pass out before you use it. Whereas then obviously when you go to the like the typical intravenous uh, opiate users, they want that nod. Like they want that. I don't know if you ever got to that point, but they want to take themselves so close to the point of overdosing, but just kind of pull back on the gas pedal just enough. And then that's the nod that you, you hear about in the common drug lexiterm. But yeah, I know that's absolutely frightening that people do that, but I understand that's, that's part of human nature, you know, to do that. I think with fentanyl though, it is very easy to, to overdose well, from sure. inhaling. With crack cocaine, that's the yeah, you, a person may not reach the point where they shut down. But with the opioid, with fentanyl, absolutely. I think, uh, I mean, I, I OD'd, uh, it's called a dry shower incident, which I wrote about it. I think it made it in some of the media um, papers. But yeah, well, especially when a person's tolerance has come down. Like I went to rehab and then I got back into smoking the fentanyl and that's a very, very high risk time. Right. Um, and so, yeah, there's something like, this is the thing, like the user will go to extreme lengths and push themselves and, you know, it's scary stuff. Like why, why are we, why are we doing this? You know, I don't know. That's just it. So let's continue our conversation on fentanyl here. So something dramatic happened in about 2010, I think was the year or 2011 was when the patent ran out on Oxycontin. And I think that was when we saw the massive insurgence of fentanyl being pressed into knockoff oxy pills. Have you seen much of that or do you have much experience or knowledge about that, especially in the Ontario area? Yes. Yeah, so there's actually a change in formulation of Oxycontin because it was known by the pharmaceutical industry that it was being abused by crushing it, snorting it, injecting it IV. So they made a new formulation called OxyNeo. Right. which uh, was much more resistant, was more tamper-proof, they thought. Uh, people eventually got around it. But it, it basically abruptly stopped the supply of OxyContin to many, many users out there. And that's a, a totally ineffective way to try to prevent addiction is to just completely cut, cut it off. So naturally, people, users, uh, chronic users of, of the OxyContin, like these are abusers, people who are not taking it uh, People were taking it for medical reasons uh, should transition probably okay would have transitioned okay, but it's, it's the users out there, the population who are accessing it streetwise, and they um, they couldn't abuse it uh, like the way that they had grown accustomed, so they just naturally gravitated over to the next best thing, and that uh, that ended up being fentanyl patches at the time. Oh, okay, so that's that's how it that's how it happened. And um, see, for us, for us in in the western in the western provinces, it wasn't introduced as a powder. Like it, or even the patches to be, I mean, the patches have always been abused over time, but it's not really been that common. So what happened to us, like still, still until recently in Saskatchewan, we hadn't seized any powdered fentanyl. We're still getting the green fake knockoff oxy pills here predominantly. Right. Which is made from, from fentanyl powder though, right? Yeah. So that opened the floodgates for organized crime to step in and fill the prescriptions per se for every, every every person who was hooked on the old oxy pills. And there's a little bit of a, of a gap here between, uh, so fentanyl patches made it into drug seekers' hands. And then at some point, someone realized, I think this was probably in China, where they could make fentanyl a powder form. It never existed in the powder form. Even when at the hospital, it was always intravenous. Oh, and then right? the patch came out. 
Yeah, so there was no such thing as fentanyl powder. It didn't exist. It couldn't come as a, as a solid. So someone somewhere at some lab in some country figured out how to make fentanyl in powdered form. And I think it came out of China, and that's where it was put into pills and then ultimately in powdered form as well being uh, mailed by apparently letters, like small amounts of fentanyl as opposed to heroin, which takes up a much more higher volume. So that, I think that's how it happened. So there's a little delay between fentanyl uh, patches, which is medical grade, and then the powder and pill form that came out afterwards. Well, that's fascinating. I wasn't aware of that. So, so from a medical, from the medical field, you guys have never seen fentanyl as a powder. Like it's never been a prescription grade fentanyl other Correct. than in the patch. Oh, that's right. There's, there's no such thing as a fentanyl pill. There's no fentanyl. Uh, formulations that come out of the powder. The intravenous comes as a liquid. It's not reconstituted from a powdered form, as far as I know. Well, the, the scary part about it is that the powder, if, this is the, the, the biggest issue, is nobody knows what concentration it is. How strong is this stuff? And that's the issue. It, it, there's no standardization there. So, you know, this person gets from their dealer one day and it, they, they can figure out what sort of strength is that, and then they get a, a new supply and it's 10 times stronger. That's where so many overdoses are happening. Nobody knows how much concentration is going in. Yeah. Well, I noticed that the, the user base, I mean, I think one of the biggest tragedies that's occurring is, is especially in, uh, in our intravenous opiate users who, you know, they may have been using intravenous opiates for the last 15 years, heroin, for example, and never, you know, never overdosed or, or they've, you know, they figured out exactly how much or what to use from a dealer supply they trust. And now all of a sudden they're going to get that same dosage unbeknownst to them. It's laced with fentanyl because the drug dealer is trying to save some money. And then the person overdoses. And for some reason, I think that's a greater tragedy. It seems odd. Cause it's like, of course you should never trust a drug dealer, but there seems to be like a, another level of, of, I don't know, evil entrepreneurship going on with, with lacing fentanyl to your customers than, than just give them the drug that they want. Right. I and mean, it's, it's in a dealer's best interest not to kill our customers. Right. You know, for, mul for multiple reasons. But there's this lack of uh, responsibility and it's, it's totally frightening. Absolutely. Oddly enough, I spoke to some people when I was in prison who uh, are involved in the high high-end drug dealing trade and they want it to be standardized. They, they want to make pills that are have a, have a dose written on it. They don't want to cause jeopardy to other people. It's crazy stuff, um, but it makes a lot of sense. You know, I'm not here to police them, but, and they're just, they're still going to produce it. But who I spoke to said they did want some sort of standardization process going on, which is not happening. And this is responsible for so many of the deaths. It's, you know, a, an experienced heroin user generally knows how to play it very careful, but even they are overdosing and dying these days. And that is tested, that is showing, proving how dangerous this is with, the fentanyl supply and not knowing what they're getting and how much concentration it is. Yeah, exactly. So, so what can, what can we do? I mean, we've got, uh, I know you've, you've shared an awesome, um, diagram with me here and I'll put that in our show notes for, for people to look at. I think it's a great graphical representation of, of what needs to be done, but maybe you can just kind of walk us through a couple of the steps and we can, we can talk about them and dissect them in, in some further detail. But from what, from what you sent me ahead of time, I mean, this is, this is great stuff and I think we're on the same page. Yeah, and so this is my, my own solution to, to the opioid crisis uh, and addiction. So first and foremost, when we speak about the opioid crisis, 
the media is just believing that this is the downtown core of like uh, Vancouver or Toronto of marginalized people living on the street who are poor. And that's, you know, and so we have safe injection sites, but for them, and that's great, but that's the tip of the iceberg. The actual opioid crisis is, is actually the thousands more people. The actual, so the, the tip of the iceberg is the safe injection sites and homeless people, but the actual iceberg itself are the thousands and thousands of people across Canada and the U.S. who are functional, a little more highly functional, coming, uh, people in their 20s to 30s living with mom and dad, uh, they have jobs as construction workers, other manual laborers, doctors, dentists, people from all walks of life. And these are the people who I'm in touch with who, who reach out to me, uh, jail guards, everything from all walks of life. So the actual opioid crisis is affecting these people. And these are the ones who are dying accidentally from overdoses in their parents' houses or uh, a couple who was partying one night who have kids and they, over, they didn't realize how, how strong it was. The, the cocaine they were using was laced with fentanyl, for example, and the parents both died. So that's the real opioid crisis. The safe injection site is just a Band-Aid. That's only for people, like I said, who are using, accessing it. It's for injection only. But what about people who are snorting it, who are smoking fentanyl, who are taking cocaine that's laced with it? Right. The fact that it's being hidden in, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of uh, jumped over from probably that original population that's using intravenous to now it's being hidden in other drugs. Yeah, is that exactly. What and, and, yeah. Right, and then there's fentanyl pills, or uh, they look like Oxy-80s, the green ones. And it is, it's just Russian roulette in that situation. And, these, and some people are losing the game of roulette, and they're dying. They're overdosing, and uh, they're using a loan sometimes. Uh, they don't have a naloxone kit with them, and and this is the real crisis there. The real crisis is the substance abuse crisis. There's so many people using these um, drugs uh, more, and more and more are dying. The number is just plainly obvious that, that the, the the battle against the opioid crisis is not being won one bit. The numbers are getting worse, worse, and worse. Uh, communities communities are getting shattered. Okay. Do do you find though that that with it, with the attention, and and I'm just thinking back to an example that we had. So here, here in Saskatoon, in probably about the summer of 2014, 2015, um, I heard that the fentanyl pills have just hit high school, and so I was like, oh no, we're gonna have a summer where we're gonna have a whole bunch of teens die and overdose. And unfortunately, we did. I mean, we had we had a handful, but what it also did is it kind of regulated because at least for the at least for the educated middle class, they saw some of their friends drop dead or, or go to the hospital. And then all of a sudden it was like, whoa, whoa, whoa we don't, we don't want to touch that drug. Yeah. So it kind of, at least that was, that was the knockoff oxy pills that they were snorting in high school. I, I think the dangers of those it sort of regulated a little bit, which was, which was kind of like a, kind of a positive that came out of a very negative example. Like I thought there was going to be hundreds yeah. of kids dropping dead, but they kind of were smart enough to back off. Yeah, I think it may make people think twice about um, trying cocaine and uh, uh, taking any sort of pill that's not pharmaceutical grade. Right. Scary stuff. It's kind of like lucky in a way. Yeah, exactly. Lucky in a way is right. Right. And I think those are more like the uh, people who like weekend warriors want to use it. But what about people who are actually actively using it on a regular daily basis? And that's, right. that would not include them. That would not include so, them so far. Yeah. yeah, I think you're, yeah, you're talking about people who just take it occasionally and just say, hey, uh, we shouldn't touch it at all because it's super dangerous. 
which is really good. But what about the population, the bigger population of opioid users out there? Well, it's interesting that you kind of fed into fentanyl from Percocets because right now high school Percocets have, and they're all knockoff Asian Percocets coming that you can buy off online now. They're, they've started flooding high schools all around Western Canada. And so I'm a little nervous. Yes, I'm a little nervous because I would say the active ingredient is probably going to be fentanyl in those things if they're knockoffs coming overseas. Yeah, it would be fentanyl. I, I wouldn't doubt that one bit because it's, it's, they can get the most bang for their buck. Uh, making oxycodone is going to be less profitable. So I can pretty much safely assume that any knockoff uh, Percocet tablet would be fentanyl. And, you know, there's a story in Ottawa, just outside Ottawa, of a 15-year-old who shared a, what they thought was a Percocet, and it had the markings of the American style uh, okay. for, for per- Percocet, and it ended up being fentanyl, and the, the OD, fortunately, they survived. Wow. But, you know, this is like, you know, the 15-year-old at a house party, they want to share, you know, half the Percocet, which if it was real, then it wouldn't be lethal. But again, they just don't know what they're getting. It's super, super dangerous in this situation. Right. Uh, so it's, this is just, I really, it's really unfortunate to hear that this is what's happening out West. Yeah. Yeah. It's happening here. Yeah. Big time. And I think we're about to see a lot of kids, a lot of kids have that exact experience that you just described. Yeah, I just hope that they get uh, access to naloxone kits if they're going to be going to that extreme. Uh, that's, that's that's totally frightening. Yeah, naloxone definitely, well, I think that probably leads into your next point. Naloxone helps save lives, for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, the next point is uh, naloxone is used at these uh, safe injection sites, and uh, police carry them now, librarians. Right. Uh, but, it, 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 yes, it's absolutely fantastic. It's the antidote in an acute emergency where somebody's overdosed, but it has nothing to do with solving the problem. It's solving the, that's treating the symptom. And so what's happening in a safe injection site, for example, if somebody nods off and, they, and uh, if they do need naloxone, they wake up and they go right back to using again. Exactly. And it's, it's just, it's, it's not, it's not, it's, this is not effective treatment uh, at all. It's just good in its, just for that short-term use in an acute overdose. There's nothing to do with treating addiction. Addiction is much more complicated to treat. So naloxone is excellent, but it has limited use. Um, the more important thing, and this is the next point, is that people need, the real, the real way to treat addiction is uh, by changing lifestyle, uh, as well as going on opioid replacement therapy. Uh, so there are two separate points here. This first one, uh, about getting treatment and learning how to live life. And like if, for me, this is what I learned. So just bring it to myself. Like I, I had to learn, relearn how to live life without relying on my crutch. Right. And that took some time. You know, first I went, I detoxed, which was horrific. And then I went to, and then I went to uh, not one, but three rehabs in total, but it takes time uh, to un- undo the behaviors associated with, uh, with substance abuse. So I, I mean, I relapsed after my first rehab, but the day I, I graduated. I wasn't ready yet. I was still sick and just obviously wasn't ready. And it, it took time. And so this is one of the problems is that, first of all, having timely access to a rehab needs to be done. And right now it's totally, totally not being uh, dealt with properly. People, when they finally hit rock bottom, uh, they're ready to get help for themselves. And, they, and if they're lucky enough to find a public rehab, then they are told, sorry, you got to wait three to six months. Exactly. So that's, that needs to improve completely. Any other disease or illness out there, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, you name it, there's a portal of entry right away. Right. Online is a portal and um, seeing your doctor and getting treatment right away. Whereas with addiction, this, this has completely fallen to the, there's, there's 
If you don't have, if you have money for private rehab, great, you can get a spot. But what if you don't have money? A lot of drug users don't have access to tens of, tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, I've seen lots of parents throw, like throwing away, well, not throwing away, I mean, they're trying to treat their kids, but they're remortgaging their house because it takes multiple times for treatment. They've spent ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, you know, to try to help their child. It's Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, it, it costs a lot. I mean, uh, it's just, uh, it, I think it comes from the insurance, you know, paying for insurance companies. That's how a lot of these rehabs operated. Most of the bread and butter comes from people who are covered by insurance, and that covers this bill of ten to twenty thousand dollars. So, and and most people need more than one rehab, um, myself included. So, yeah, this can be incredibly costly. Uh, why, you know, we have universal health care here, but why don't we have timely access to rehab beds? So that's that's the issue and detox. And it needs the next thing is it needs to be seamless. So once a person transitions from detox to rehab, they need to go right away. They, yeah. they, they can't just discharge them and be on, be on their own. Like, now they're totally vulnerable. They're scared. They're frightened. They feel terrible, especially if there's no, somebody recovering from opioids. And uh, that's what happens, though. Like, they go to a detox. And, uh, and also, just add in there, a lot, of, a lot of detoxes are horrible. They're horrifying to people. They're very dirty places. Not all, not all, but well, a lot are mixed some in. Of them. I mean, a lot of the public, the public detox centers are mixed in with managing the alcoholics that are picked up by the police every night. Kind of the kind of the town, kind of the town drunks, if you want to refer to them as that. But you know, you you, you kind of drive around, you pick them up, the police drop them off at the detox center, but they're in the bed right beside the you know eighteen or nineteen year old that you know just fell into into something like there. It's a very different detox and if there's not mm-hmm. and if there's no uh, treatment bed available the next day well this person you're just sending them out into the community again and you haven't dealt with their issue and then they get stuck in this cycle of only ever going to detox and never making it to rehab yeah yeah that's that's an issue for sure and, and pairing up a younger person who's in detox for the right reasons with somebody who was picked up off the street from alcohol and is only there just buying their time basically until they can yeah, get free is yeah. not really a good thing no uh, at all so some, some sort of form of um, separation in that situation would be ideal I, I think I know at Weston things are better though like in Vancouver I know if, I can't remember the name of the program but this is not a, they, people who use a safe injection site if they're ready and want are willing to go to detox they have it right there in the same facility and then they transition in the same facility again to rehab, and they also provide housing for them once uh, once they're done. Which is that is that's the system where we want. I think it's called Insight. Yeah, Insight is there is there a safe injection site? Yep. And so that's a great idea. Uh, uh, so just to have that seamless uh, use there. One more thing which we didn't mention, just on a side note, safe injection site only caters to people who are injecting, yeah. and so that again that's the only the smaller part of the population. What about the people who are using uh, and snorting? Yeah, uh, you know, crushing up, snorting, and uh, smoking, or or chewing on patches. Like it should be a safe consumption site, not safe injection site. Just another FYI there. Yeah, I agree. But you know what? May as well kind of have a little conversation about this. So I, I had to, uh, I got pulled in to consult with um, some local politicians here because with the federal government's basically going to help support any municipality that wants to open up a safe injection site, and. I thought that was uh, so. They kind of asked for some opinions, for kind of from the street street perspective, and in 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 Saskatchewan uh, and in a lot of Canadian cities, when it's cold out, 
I mean, I'm, I'm all for harm reduction, but I'm also for spending my money wisely. And when I know that there's a three week wait from detox to rehab, if I get cash, that's the, that's the gap that I want to close first, because in the middle of winter, when it's minus 40, if I go and I buy my loaded syringe from a nice warm house where my friends are, where they're all using, where it's, this is a safe, you know, normal environment for people to be using. And why would I be buying my $20 rig walking or taking the bus all the way downtown to use at the safe injection site. You know, I, I, I don't see that happening in the winter time. And although we, I think every city should have one for that option, I don't know if that's the first place we should be injecting money when we have these other deficits that I think we could make up. Yeah, I guess it depends on logistics. I mean, I'm not familiar with Saskatoon, but that totally makes sense. People are not going to travel in cold weather right. to go to downtown to use when it's just the comfort of their own home or comfort of a gas station bathroom or whatever, you know? So, so yes, the logistics definitely play a part. And I, I'm, a, I'm in agreement with you too, because from a taxpayer standpoint, the, the b- biggest bang for their buck is, like you just said, the seamless transition from detox into rehab and then aftercare. That's, that's where the real treatment is. You know, that's where you capture much higher numbers of users out there. So, yeah, safe injection sites, like I said, that's just a smaller segment of the population. And, that, and the politicians kind of have it wrong that they think that that's, the treatment. It's, yeah, they, they, they think harm reduction, they think safe injection site, they think those terms are kind of, you know, synonymous with one another, but they're not. Um, when you refer to aftercare, what are you referring to there? So aftercare is just from my own experience. So after a person completes rehab, they can go home uh, once they're stabilized and ready, and or they can go to a sober living home. But it is, it's still important to keep keep in touch with uh, others to stay connected to the community, to their community. Uh, that's a, you know, uh, addiction and abuse, uh, drug abuse is all about isolation generally. Yeah. And recovery, recovery is about connection. And so it, it ensures that people are still connected with in their community with people around them. So aftercare for me is meeting up uh, through an addictionist who's a specialist doctor in addiction. Doesn't always have to be that way. A lot of them are um, uh, mediated by drug treatment counselors too. And it's just for people who've been through, who are in recovery, some have gone to rehab, some haven't, but they're there as a, a self-help group, uh, the comfortable environment, safe environment, um, people protect their own confidentiality of the group. And as opposed to a 12-step meeting with AA or NA, there's talking that goes back and forth. So you become part of this little community. And like this is a big part of my recovery. I've made a lot of good friends in my aftercare group. They, they, they care about me. I report to them what's going on in my life. I help them. They help me just by sharing our experiences. And, and so it, that's super important to recovery is to have that, that connection like that. Well, that's good to Back hear. Back aftercares. Yeah, I mean, for healthcare professionals, because we're even more difficult and, and more stubborn <laughs> to change our ways, we have our own special group for aftercare that I also attended, this is called the Caduceus. So that's the name of the medical staff assemble. Um, so they, they exist all over the country, but you know, what about other people? Um, you know, so aftercare is another one. It's very affordable. Um, right. Oh, yeah, pays, pays the physician, uh, sorry, our, our, uh, like a facilitator pay, pays him. And so, so it's, 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 you know, getting people together. That's the bottom line, getting people together who, who are not afraid because talking about my problems, sharing my feelings and being with, connected with others is a huge part of recovery. And not only that, one of the things I discovered in my own, my own uh, experience is that it's also the key to happiness, right. you know, being connected with others. I live in a city totally. in Toronto with three, 3 million people, and I don't know my neighbors. I don't talk to people outside here. Right. Uh, you know, it's, ama- it's amazing how there's so much disconnect. So isolation is the, bad, is the bad guy, and connection is the good guy. 
Yeah, that's great. We we preach a lot of those same principles in in our talks too. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a, this is a part of mental health that's super important. Like we've become more and more segregated in our society compared to a hundred years ago. I mean, we used our living rooms. You know, I, I, we used our living rooms when we entertained people in our houses. I, people now, <laughs> you know, they, they they have their living room and they never use it. You know, it's it's like it's, and if they do, they'll we'll have a TV in there or we we'll use their cell phones and they're total distractions from. The most important part is connection with other people and put away all the other stuff. Right. I learned this in jail, in jail too, when I was in prison, you know, like when you have nothing and, but other people, you realize the importance of other people. Like by far the most important thing in life is, is connection with other people, relationships with other people. And that's something I, I, that kept me happy in, in prison. Fascinating. So, so what have we got next on your, on your plan of what our country can do? Another big one is, is, relies on what we were just speaking about, this unknown quantity of uh, concentration of fentanyl, the active drug in the, in the powder, to know, you know it's completely variable. It's Russian roulette. We don't know the strength of, this, of, the, of the dose that people are taking. So this is, it, it, the main thing is to control, the pharma, provide and substitute street drugs with pharmaceutical-grade drugs. This seems totally crazy. And the politicians are like, well, we can't, le- we can't legalize this. Yeah, crazy to everybody except anyone with street experience and a few seconds of common sense. Right. So, so users are getting, they, they know what they're getting, and that totally makes it safe. And the fear from, the, from a lot of people who don't quite understand this out there uh, is that, oh, we're just going to introduce other people to, to drugs, and it's going to make it a gateway for them. So cause, well, that's crazy. Why would, we, why would we provide pharmaceutical-grade drugs? But... You can look at studies in Portugal and other countries that have done this. And even uh, downtown Vancouver, they could provide um, medical-grade heroin to people. Yeah, I think there's a pilot project on there now. Right. Uh, I think it's diacetyl morphine is the technical name for it. But anyway, it's, instead of providing fentanyl, which is totally dangerous anyway, but providing some sort of, of like uh, opioid that's pharmaceutical-grade, then people know what they're getting. And that is a very quick and easy way to prevent and reduce overdoses. People, the users need to know what they're getting, and it's not right to think, to assume that more people are going to start using drugs. Like, people don't just jump into IV drug use. They graduate. You know, like, right. I graduated from, from uh, maybe not a positive word of graduation, but <laughs> yeah. trans- transition from... Transition over. Per- per- transition from Percocet to fentanyl, just like you know, with intravenous drug use, they don't start off that way. No way. They start off with, with oxycontin or Percocet, Vicodin, um, codeine and work their way up the ladder. So, so providing medical grade injectable drugs is not crazy. It is no. totally makes a lot of sense. And we need to get over this, um, uh, resting on our high moral. High moral that's, that's what it is. More moral based policies instead of common sense and research based bars policies. Right. Yeah. Let's look at the evidence. Have you happened to read the book uh, Off the Street by William Bogart? He's a Canadian. No, no. I think, and I think he's a professor out of Waterloo University. We're having him on the show. But uh, I just finished reading his book. My wife, I, don't, I won't tell him this, but my wife uh, came home from the library. She's like, I found this book you're going to love. It's like, oh, you, you took that out? Like, I don't know if I can read it in three weeks. And, and she's like, no, I bought it. It was only 50 cents. But out of, <laughs> out of all the they were selling it, just uh, some of their old books or whatever, but it's, it's new. Like it's only 2016 it was released, but it hits exactly on the, pol- the what we're talking about on the policies and creating um, 
and how we can so nice. yeah the research behind it all so it's a re- okay a recent book and 50 cents good deal there yeah good deal 50 cents and i learned a lot <laughs> <laughs> uh so I, yeah unfortunately i'm at a loss i don't know uh I don't know this medication. But, sorry, I don't know this book. But is he talking about? Uh, he's talking about exactly. Legalization? Yes, he's yeah. He's his uh, his kind of montage is. Uh, I think he says all the time, uh, "Legalize and discourage" is kind of the is kind of what he says. We want to legalize it so that it's readily available, so that the dan- we we can mitigate the risks associated, and then in turn we use those funds to discourage people from using. And I think he hit the nail on the head there. Yep. I mean, it, it, it's, I don't know, it's, it's a very simple thing, but it's very hard for people to kind of mm-hmm. grasp uh, who aren't really involved in the addiction community, uh, politicians who looking out for ulterior motives. Right. But that's a huge one. It's like, really, that's the biggest thing we can do to help help this crisis right now is to provide reliable uh, pharmaceutical grade. And, and then the next thing is not even just for injectable drug users. What about you know, this would get rid of people who are abusing the pills and the powder on the street. And this is a, another tough one, but providing pharmaceutical grade tablets really? of, of oxycodone. But it makes sense. So people at least know what they're getting. Does that mean people are going to be encouraged to use it more? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Um, well, could you stretch this out outside of opioids? Like how would we deal with, do you think we could take a similar approach to other drugs or is this specific to opi- opioids? I mean, it, it could be because right now there's you know, cocaine and heroin. That's uh, sorry, heroin's in there, but cocaine. That's uh, well, meth. Meth is the biggest issue I, I would say facing us today. I would even put it ahead of opioids. That's a more of a slow killer rather than the rapid killer. So you don't hear too many people ODing. Well, off that's meth. the problem. There, no one, no one dies. They just go crazy, and and the the kind of chaos that is created. Yeah, in the it's so destructive. Yeah, it's super destructive. Yeah. I can't really speak to that. I don't know enough to really say. I don't, you know, as far as providing for pharmaceutical grade amphetamines, that's uh, a little beyond the scope of my knowledge. But certainly the same mechanism is here of, of abuse and how destructive this drug is. I mean, in jail, I, I couldn't believe how many people I saw in prison, actually, who were young people were missing their teeth. There's oh, only yeah, one explanation. So um, you know, that's this, you know, meth mouth that just completely uh, destroys people's, you know, it's, it destroys their lives, not to mention their dental hygiene. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. You know, so it's a very destructive drug. And what to do about solving that crisis? You know, that's um, one, you know, the one same supports the are there, though. <laughs> rehab. Sorry, I missed what you said. I said I think it's it's kind of one battle at a time, I suppose, in in a lot of these these things. Yeah, but, but I, true. But I guess the same things. I mean, it's, it's destroying communities as well, and and. I think it is should be a blanket approach, not just for opioids. This, this uh, for me, like my my uh, solutions that we're discussing now, proposed solutions, is for opioids because that's my specialty. But the same thing, uh, some of the same things, most of the same. Most things of it crosses applied. over. Most importantly, is getting help. You know, why are people abusing these drugs in the first place? Right. And addressing the psychological things that that take place. I'm not saying it's a psychological illness. It's just that. People resort to drugs usually because it's a form of escape right. and, and, and a crutch. And so it's the same thing whether it's crystal meth or heroin or, or uh, other opioids. Right. Um, so getting to the real issues, and that's, that's, you know, that's, but another step here is to realize that this is not a moral failing. Right. Uh, this is a, ment- a form of mental illness. I mean, some people, yes, they, they binge drink Does that, and they binge use. Does that mean it's mental illness? No. You know, sometimes they can control their use and stop. Right. Uh, so it doesn't mean it's mental illness, but addiction, like the full, the full-fledged substance abuse and dependency aspect of it. Yes, it is, and it becomes 
it definitely falls under the heading of mental, mental illness. Totally. Um, the first thing that a person loses, including myself, is insight. So the ability to look at yourself and go, this is bad what I'm doing. Like, like the people lose that capacity, and that's, that's super important to regain that in, in my recovery, having insight and realizing, like, hey, maybe I shouldn't do this because they're going to have repercussions. That's also right. the ability to have good, exercise good judgment, too. That goes out the door in addiction. Like, even though I, even though I kind of, maybe sometimes I did realize something was wrong, I didn't care. You know, I just didn't care. So deeply involved in addiction. So that's the main thing is to realize people uh, are not to blame. You should not blame them for their drug use. Do you, do you think like once a person starts feeling shame and ashamed of themselves, is it, does it become that much harder to kind of look within and, and analyze kind of what you've done because it's just too painful to do or? Yeah. I mean, it's a dirty, dark, deep secret at that point. You know, some people like, some people are open about it, but I mean, I could just speak from my own experience. Yeah. I mean, I was trying to keep it all together. You know, I was still, still practicing medicine and, uh, and that in itself was just like incredibly shameful. Right. Uh, very, very difficult to get help. I was so reluctant to, to admitting to myself that I had a problem. My family was going crazy saying like, you're, you know, you're sick, you're sick. And I'm, I'm like, no, no, I got under control. I'm okay. I'm okay. Right. And, and it took so long to get to the point where I realized, oh my God, I do need help. You know, it just, it took, it took to consequences, like being pulled off the schedule, being arrested. Right. Like it was so reluctant. And so yeah, the shame, the shame that comes with it and the secrecy and denial, it's very, very strong, but pervasive. It's very common amongst users in their isolation. Right. The good, the other, the, the, the good side to that though, is when I speak out now and let people know you're not alone. Right. The lying and the deceiving is part of the, the is part of the substance abuse. It's part of it. I understand. But by asking for help and admitting to some of the stuff and taking ownership of it, it gets a whole lot better. And there's a whole bunch of us over here on the side who who gone through recovery, myself included, who are beacons to say it's possible to get over here and to let them know that you're not alone. So that's how we get them out of that that shame and, and stigma that they they don't you know, they did look horribly upon themselves. And the second they can ask for help and see there's other people out there that are smiling and forgiving them, like people forgave me when I came through the doors, uh, that's incredibly powerful stuff. That's, that's uh, the early stages now we, we start solving uh, so much of the issues that are going on. Right. So how big, of a, how big of a role do you think people who are in recovery or that have the lived experience uh, should play in formulating policy and kind of helping deal with these crises. Like, how how important are those voices? Yeah, incredibly. And, and the good news is the government, uh, the federal government, is interested to hear from Health Canada. They, they're interested to hear anybody's story. Anybody who wants to talk to them, uh, they can reach people through Health Canada. Okay. Um, I could provide you with a link for that. That'd be uh, great. To, it's, it's not a web link, but I, gotta, I, gotta, I can talk to them about it and find out if there's I, could, I have their email addresses, but they are interested. They want to know what's going on. They want, they want it to, it's just a really good thing. So when they're developing policy, they can at least have some live, people with lived experience to help develop them in the first place. That's great. So it's a fantastic idea. Um, but at the same time, they, they're still stuck in the bureaucracy, and it's hard to enact change. There's a lot of cooks in, in the kitchen, I suppose, um, when it comes to federal, provincial, and municipal and like developing a strategy that's comprehensive and it's federal and national is very hard to do. And uh, so that doesn't mean it can't be done, but this is, this is where the solution lies. And it starts from grassroots to talk to people and it's helpful. Just on a side note here, it's helpful in recovery to talk about my experience and it right. helps me. And 
and it's it's my responsibility I feel to to reach out to particularly because I'm a physician to reach out to other people and let them know about my story and that it's okay they're, they're not alone it's important anybody in recovery step 12 of any 12 step program they have a lot of good things in the program first of all I'm not a complete 100% believer in the 12, all the 12 steps, but they have a lot of good things about it. Yeah. And the 12 steps itself is to say, you know, reach out and help other people when you're ready, when you're right. ready. It helps, it helps your recovery. And so in the beginning, I was very needy when I, when I came through, I was very sick and in a desperate situation and people uh, were really good to me. And I needed that love that I got from the 12 step groups and the, the, the uh, drug addictions counselors and the rehab people. And, eventually it becomes your responsibility to give it back. So it's a, it's a, cycl- a cyclical thing mm-hmm. and it's vital to, I think, to a person's recovery to, to reach out and help other people. Yeah, I think so too. And I've never had, I've, I've never come across somebody who, who uh, is, is struggling with addiction, who isn't willing to share their story if they know that you're willing to listen to it. And I think, yeah. I think that needs to play a big role. I know with the Canadian Research Initiative of Substance Misuse, CRISM, they uh, gave us funding for this podcast and, and our Say No program is, is part of their Prairie. Oh. Yeah, we're kind of part of their Prairie division. But they, at their conference we just had in Calgary back in November or October, we actually just instilled into policy now that in order to get funding through CRISM, they actually have to, and anybody applying, any of the researchers actually have to address that they have consulted with someone who have lived experience. And I think that, I think that's a big transition in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And then it's the, the big wigs, those who are making the decisions. Like this is where I need, I, I'm hoping I can wiggle my way onto these boards and to, in, into these positions uh, where it's not just I'm sharing my personal experience, but I'm actually helping enact change. That's, exactly. That's what I hope to do, but it's very difficult to navigate through that and to get into that such a position. So yeah, it's great that the government's asking for help, but why not put people with lived experience onto these boards and, exactly. and, and help this make decisions with policymakers? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. That's another one. It's not in the diagram I show you, but uh, that's um, one of my personal interests for sure. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's definitely required. Could I just go into one more thing here? Yeah, please do. Uh, I kind of touched on it. Sure. So one of the other arms is uh, we got to immediately we need to immediately curtail the vilification of opioid dependent persons as blameworthy criminals. Addiction is not a moral failure. It is a disease in which the central feature is impaired control over the use of addictive substances. It's a disease of cyclical abuse and relapse. And so what, that, what I'm getting at when I'm reading that to you is blaming people like, well, you, you, this is, uh, you know, like they, they'll love to use the Darwinian uh, survival of the fittest argument, which is complete right. malarkey, yeah, complete, complete malarkey. You can't be using a... <laughs> Theories of evolution and natural selection, and this, this is not applicable one bit. People who are involved in drugs have, are sick. We need to treat them as people who are sick. They may not seem obviously sick to you or me, but their judgment and uh, insight are impaired. And so, what, what what this translates to is, like, for example, I myself included when I was in the emergency department working as an emergency department physician, and the nurses and and us were kind of like having this us versus them mentality of you know, we'd, we'd vilify someone who identified as a, a drug abuser. Right. And they would get second-class second treatment. And th- this happens all the time in hospitals across the country, in emergency departments. And the staff who work there, they, these are healthcare professionals who do care, and they are professionals, but I think they are lacking proper education about understanding what really substance abuse is about and how it affects people. 
but the first tenet of caring for others is to not judge them. Right. We cannot judge our patients. Um, and in the inner cities, we don't, you know, it's, it's maybe a little better with it because they have the physicians and nurses there are exposed to it a lot more, but in these communities, smaller hospitals, there's so much judgment that goes on and second class treatment of people. And I, I hear the stories from people, they write me about it and it's horrific and there's no room for judgment in our society uh, in particular, our hospitals and frontline staff. So that's something that I need to want to address personally mm-hmm. is to go from hospital to hospital, speak to them, help educate them, provide in-service for nurses and uh, medical conferences for physicians to better educate them because it's their lack of knowledge that puts them on the defensive. Right. Um, it's just, it's, it's ignorance and it's not their fault because this stuff wasn't taught when they were in, in nur- nursing school and medical school. So, um, just like other things with nurses that in-servicing, I mean, they learn new skills on new medications or new t- uh, devices or technology, but in-service needs to be provided for understanding substance abuse. Absolutely. Back in Vancouver, few, quite a few years ago, there was a giant uh, uh, prescription pill symposium, and there was, there was, it was a lot of doctors that owned the pill clinics across the country, or the pain clinics, I should say, and researchers and it was, it was mostly medical. And then there was a few law enforcement there for, I think maybe just another perspective or something, but we kind of sat back and just listened and they had this big panel at the front and I'll never forget the one guy up there. And I I don't know his name, but I do know that he owned one of the pain centers in Ontario, but he came out and he said, and he was actually kind of teary eyed and he, and he came out and he said, like at no point during my medical training, was I ever told that somebody's going to walk into my office and lie to me about their symptoms? And, <laughs> and it's just, Good point. and it, it really was because here, where all these cops were sitting back there, well, everyone lies to us. Like we're so used to it. everyone's a liar to, to a, <laughs> to a cop <laughs> yeah. is worth doing right. in the street. And to hear that from another professional who's then not recognizing that this person is struggling with an addiction and you're just handing them like some very serious dosing here and you could actually implement you know, some treatment options for this person, or at least start a conversation or maybe mm-hmm. suit your prescriptions accordingly. But uh, yeah, I thought that was, that was interesting. Yeah. It, it is. It's, it's frightening because uh, for the physician, you know, to think that somebody could be lying to them about, about it and it puts them in a totally new world. So I can mm-hmm. understand how this physician would have been um, totally surprised. Uh, and this is where we're, uh, this is generally now the, the, the secondary reaction, like, psychologically speaking is sure what the word is for it, but it's like, well, how dare you lie to me? I'm going to, now I'm going to treat you the way you treat me. And this is now stepping over the line professionally. Like right. the professionals, whether police or physicians or nurses need to realize that's part of the illness. Right. This is not, right. not the same person of right mind and body. Right. Um, so they're lying to me, but it's, it's instead of a moral failure to say, well, how dare they do this? It's just time to take a step back and go, wait a second. Like, they are not capable. They may look like it, that they're functional, but they're not fully capable and fully autonomous in medical terms is to say that, you know, they, they've lost their decision-making capacity. Right. And to, and to take it from that compassionate, sympathetic standpoint, it's, uh, the nice thing is I am seeing law enforcement across North America that are starting to, you know, they're saying, you know, we can't arrest everyone out of this problem. If it's right. illness, we need to treat them with rehab, not jail. Right. That's fantastic. That's yeah. fantastic. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's exactly what needs to happen. Um, you know, get people into proper treatment. Like, uh, you know, it's uh, somebody with possession charges, like 
you know, putting them in, it's locking them up, putting them in jail. Is waste not, of time yeah, and waste money. Time. Yeah. So just recently here over like, like March, March 10th, 11th, we had in Saskatoon, some fentanyl laced cocaine and uh, there was a, a couple overdose deaths from it and some big arrests made, but it was, I had a little bit of a small win from my, obviously I'm, I'm on the research-based drug policy side and that's, that side is a minority as far as the police officers that I work with go. Typically, um, it is changing and the culture is changing, like you said. But it was one of the best things I heard was uh, he's actually my superintendent, Dave Hay, who I think at the time he was acting as the deputy chief. But he put out a statement and he was letting the public know. And the, the Saskatoon Police Service actually released the phone number of the drug dealer that this laced drugs were coming from when they once they seized it and realized and then they released the street they released the street name of the of the drug dealer who you know was selling this drugs to selling these drugs and then in his statement he went on to say that these people who are addicted don't need more charges they need treatment and to hear someone that high up in my police service say that i was like hooting and hollering i don't know if it just slipped out or what but yeah. either way i'm going to be holding him <laughs> accountable to that statement because yeah. it was he knows me well. That but message, yeah, it's yeah, that great. that message certainly re- resonated with me when I saw it in the news. It was televised here in uh, Toronto as well. Oh, good. Him speaking, and that his words completely resonated with me and stuck with me ever since I heard it. And that's just that it was so. Uh, it was refreshing. Was the word for it, yeah, cathartic to say yeah. this is a, a person in an important position and they get the big picture. They understand it. Right. Uh, so that felt good to, just to hear him say that, uh, and and to put away fears of uh, put, putting up this information, making it public about the dealer's name and phone number, and not worrying about negative consequences. Right. Like the, he realized the greater good here is protecting the public, public health, and yeah. getting the drugs that 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 uh, you know they the rest made in this situation are. I would think to try to get the stuff off the street as much as possible. Like they said in the report, they weren't sure how much still stayed on the street, but like, kudos, you know, congratulations yeah. to, to him for, yeah, for doing that. That's, that's like a change in the way the mentality of, of law enforcement. And it, it was more from a public health perspective. And that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, it really is. Well, uh, Dr. Gabian, I could talk to you for hours about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I really, yeah. Can. Maybe we can catch up again and we can focus on another topic and really isolate something. Yeah, that's, that's great. Well, I really appreciate you, um, you know, giving me the opportunity to speak and hopefully we can publish these uh, solutions on to, we, we want to disseminate this as much as possible. So we would appreciate any help from your side and your listeners Yeah, and uh, provide you with the image that we were speaking about along with the uh, discussion of the solutions. Yeah, I'll definitely put this in with the show notes. If that's cool with you. Okay, that's fantastic. Great. I like to end every one of my podcasts. I ask the same, the, the guests, the exact same question: Is addiction a, a healthcare issue or a criminal justice issue? Absolutely, a healthcare issue, no doubt. <laughs> no doubt about <laughs> no it. No doubt. I knew that would be your answer. Yeah, I mean, addiction is one thing. We're, you know, it's a whole other thing that we're talking about uh, importing drugs and those stuff like that. But the addiction itself, substance misuse is another technical word, is a health condition. Right. Uh, even people who abuse it, like, like I said, weekend warriors, even that, that the, the recklessness and the crutch and dependency on it uh, for, for reward, even that is a form of maladaptive mental health. Right. So absolutely, is, this is a medical public health issue, not a legal issue. Great. All right, Dr. Gabian, thank you very much for your time. 
You're welcome, Matt. Thanks so much for the call. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Well, that was uh, Dr. Daryl Gebian, the uh, Ontario physician who served some jail time for trafficking fentanyl, really to himself, um, hence why he got a lighter jail sentence. But he's now taken it upon himself to change the narrative in this country. He's come up with some phenomenal solutions. They're straight to the point. He's got 10 talking points we're going to post up on on uh, the website under our show notes for this episode, as well with a great diagram um, that kind of puts it all into perspective. So I'm super thankful that there are people like Daryl Gebian, professionals also with lived experience that are actually willing to do something really positive. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, uh, check out our website, sayno.org. Like us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash sayno.org or tweet us at sayno.org. Bye for now.